Welcome to Nurture versus Nurture. Today we'll meet Anne, an only parent. In her words, sometimes they call widows only parents instead of single parents because it's just us, right? Today you'll hear the story of Anne and nine-year-old Luke and the bounty and hiccups that come with, quote, being just us. We'll learn untranslatable words for warding off the evil eye and what to do when someone you don't want to see rings the doorbell. Most important, we'll hear a cosmically beautiful explanation of life, death, and energy brought to you from the mind of a nine-year-old. First, a disclaimer. What you are about to listen to is not a professional counseling session. Each episode is a one-time conversation, and the advice I offer does not constitute psychological treatment or serve as a substitute for professional diagnosis, intervention, or behavioral health care. In order to protect their privacy, our guests have been given pseudonyms and some personal details have been changed. If you have concerns about your child's well-being or your own, seek out guidance from a medical or mental health professional. Good places to start? your child's pediatrician, the counseling staff at your child's school, and the American Psychological Association's Comprehensive Guide to Finding Resources in Your State. And now, on to the fun. Good morning. Hi, Wendy. Here's what I know besides that you have really interesting art there behind (laughs) you. And I see a bird and a buffalo. My son made that for a school project last year. Which one? The buffalo, the bison. Yeah, they were studying Native Americans and he made it with all found materials. Pretty cool. So that's a collage? That's not a drawing? No, it's a collage, and it's all like bark and moss, and he whittled the antlers. There's charcoal for eyes. Okay, so that takes us right to our theme today, because one of the things we're going to talk about is getting in a state of flow where you can get outside your head. Mm. And the reason for this is two different things. One is during this pandemic, everybody is finding themselves with a lot of internal chatter, sort of like the voices in our head do a stress interview with us (laughs) a lot of the time. Yeah. Many of the distractions and things that absorb us that we're accustomed to in daily life have changed or have disappeared. So let's introduce you. You are Anne. You are a brand strategist. Are you doing that kind of work now? Yeah, I've been working as a consultant, but I'm about to take a full-time job, I think. Okay. Do we cross our fingers for you on that? We cross our fingers. It's something I can do from home, and it's something I really want. And I don't admit to wanting things often, but I want it. And there's the stability in something full-time that I think I need at this point, especially coming out of this pandemic year. 
So you've brought up something very interesting, which is cherishing longing that instead of having almost a counterphobic attitude towards things, our heart's desire, our mind desires, our spirit desires, to allow yourself to really want this job. Yeah, that's hard for me. And one of the reasons that's hard for people is that they want to protect themselves against disappointment. Totally. So what we know about you is that your husband died in a bicycle accident when your son Luke was two and a half years old. Correct. And Luke is now 10. He's in the fourth grade. And the two of you are living with each other and with a golden retriever puppy named Clover. Yeah, she just turned one yesterday. So talk to me about what we could unpack together today. Some of my concerns, if that's even the right way of saying it, or maybe it's just something I'm hyper aware of, is that it's really me and my son kind of against the world, right? We had just moved to the state when his father died. And again, it was very sudden. He was coming home from work and, you know, sort of didn't arrive until the police knocked at the door and told me he was already in brain surgery and he died four days later. And I remember sitting in the backyard with our son maybe a couple days after that. And he said, Mama, I don't know what died means. Yeah. I was like, right. And so he and I, since day one, very much so, but also through this experience, again, being new to the state, not knowing a lot of people, we don't have any family here. We are just very close. And he is a wonderful, incredible, very demanding child. And I just sometimes don't know how to do it all myself. And I think I had finally learned to bring in more people, like to broaden the community and to rely on others and sports and friends and all of that. And then when the pandemic hit, I think the thought or the reality or the sort of glass of cold water in my face that again, it's just me and him. And I'm making all the decisions. I have friends who are divorced, but they have an ex across town who helps make decisions and maybe helps support them financially or takes the kids sometimes. And I, I don't have that. Sometimes they call widows only parents instead of single parents because it's just us, right? And the fatigue I feel and my son's separation anxiety, which he definitely has, keeps him relatively clingy to me. He's very afraid I'm going to die. He's very afraid about his own death. It's something we talk about, not daily, but close. And I think I could be more patient and find a way to sort of carve out better boundaries because <laughs> I don't feel like we really have many in the house, especially as he's starting to go into puberty. And how I do that without not hurting him. I know he's a resilient boy, but I'm sort of all he has here. It makes it really challenging because I can't tap out. I think it's that really is how do we spend this much time together and how will he grow up to be a well-balanced, not enmeshed, healthy person who can have relationships and all those kinds of things and not worry so much about me. 
That was a long-winded answer. <laughs> Sorry. It's a thorough a answer. A thorough answer. Tell me what you learned about Luke at his last parent-teacher conference. I only hesitate because I, I don't want to be that mom, but... Whoa, whoa. Okay, wait, please. Uh-huh. Is it that mom who brags? Yes, I can't do that. Okay, this is the same person who's excited about possibly getting a good job that you are looking forward to having. And I just noticed some of your language as you were talking about the situation, and it's us against the world, and you don't want to be enmeshed, and how do you raise him to be a certain kind of adult? It's thoughtful, nuanced, and ambitious, and it's a little bit big and abstract, which is why Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the granular. So please brag. If we were here together, (laughs) I might push you a little bit physically. Let's let's hear it, Anne. Okay. My son is academically just off the charts. He just turned 10 recently, and he's reading many levels above his age. He's pretty brilliant at math, piano, (laughs) sort of everything he does. Things come to him a little easy, which sometimes makes me nervous. I want to make sure he's learning to work hard. But he just has a really brilliant mind. And he can wrap his head around abstract concepts and at the same time, like analyze text and all those things. He loves things he can control. Shocking, right? So math, piano, he's been a hockey player, like precision, he really likes. You can sort of see it in that buffalo, right? That's a meticulous buffalo for, I guess he was nine when he made that. It's meticulous and it's also warm and fuzzy looking, at least from <laughs> yeah. my view. I want to yeah, pet it, it and get up oh, yeah. close to it. Yeah. It is not an anxious, obsessive buffalo. No. It looks like a real buffalo. Yeah. So continue. What else did they say? Did they say he doesn't have a single friend and we keep trying to match him up with just one kid that he might have a conversation with? No, no, no. It's not that. His thing to work on is not interrupting his teachers, not getting impatient with his friends that aren't maybe at his same level, not wanting to provide the answers for everyone else when he's ready to move on. His thing is all about self-control. And he definitely thinks he's smarter. He thinks he's in the wrong grade that he should be at least one or two grades up, that kind of thing. But no, he definitely has friends, and he's very social. He's social. He has friends. He's an athlete and a musician. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what? (laughs) The look on your face is so good. (laughs) Not interrupting. I do want to bring it back home a little bit, because what I hear you doing, and you may have been very much like this before, the tragic, completely unexpected death of your husband. But I hear you wanting to get ahead of problems Mm. and to figure out what you can do 
if things come up or maybe pad the environment so that they don't come up. But I just want to zero in on the interrupting a tiny little bit. He's a tiny bit full of himself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is both stimulating to his teachers because he's so bright and so articulate, but he's a tiny bit the king of the castle. What happens at home if he interrupts you? I think since he was young, he's a perfectionist and he's quite hard on himself. It's challenging for me to listen to sometimes. He can really beat himself up if he makes like even the smallest mistake. And when he interrupts at home, I'll hold up my finger or I'll say, excuse me, I'm talking, I'm not finished. Sometimes he'll railroad over that. If I'm on the phone, he'll interrupt. I wouldn't be surprised if he wanders in here at some point. He is home. But I address it but it doesn't necessarily change his behavior. If that's right. Yes, it does. You address it ineffectively. Apparently. (laughs) So those fingers, mom's fingers, holding them up, it it looks just right. It's a cross between a railroad crossing and a salute. And he pays it no mind, Mm -hmm. really, because his sense of, and this is the tricky part, it's a combination of urgency and enthusiasm. Yes. And it's one of the beautiful things about children. They're so excited about their own ideas. Their own desires feel very urgent. And they have a lot of energy. So whatever you're doing cannot possibly be as big as what Luke is wanting to tell you, ask you, or have you do for him at that moment. Mm-hmm. What else have you tried besides the hand? We've had talks like after the fact, we've sat down and I've said like, look, buddy, it's disrespectful or this is why you can't. I'm going to stop you right here. And some of the (laughs) listeners to this show have said, could we get Dr. Mogul to stop interrupting the guests so much? But (laughs) they are. That's so funny. (laughs) This is a good one. So You've had conversations and said it's disrespectful. That concept is too abstract for him. Mm. Respectful? Mom, uh, what about respecting what I have to tell you right now? Because I'm almost finished with the bison, and I just had this incredible idea of using charcoal for the eyes. It's going to be amazing. Do you think so? Do you agree? Can you help me find Mm -hmm. the charcoal? And now I use the charcoal, but it's starting to crumble as I begin to glue it onto this board. And so his idea of respect is completely mutual, a little bit balanced in his direction because he is a robust, enthusiastic child. And an only child. Sometimes I say I've laughed with other, my friends, where I'm like, I should have knocked his towers over when he was building them when he was little. Like in our house, he'll build this incredible Lego. And then I feel like I should have messed with him more because when it's just the two of us, it stays built. And when his friends will come over and want to play with the things or kind of, again, mess with his stuff, he's very confused by it because he doesn't know why someone would want to take it apart. So I think sometimes like our relationship is quite harmonious. Mm, I'll bet. And we have conflict for sure, but 
Not a lot, unless he's driving me completely crazy. (laughs) So let's bring Clover into this. Okay. Because one of the fantastic things about puppies is they are not terribly complicated and they are very willing to knock over Legos and to even destroy magnificent bison three quarters of the way complete. How's Luke getting along with the puppy and assisting with raising this puppy into a civilized dog? Well, they get along famously. He totally adores her. He doesn't really follow any of the training protocol that he should. He screams, mom, like literally 10, 20 times a day when they're together. And he feels like he doesn't know what to do, even though he knows what to do and is capable of it. He seems somewhat overwhelmed by how needy and rambunctious she is. Our last dog was very calm and sort of Buddha-like. This puppy is not. She's full of energy. And she definitely thinks he's a puppy, too. (laughs) And he behaves like one with her. He'll chase her when she steals something. He struggles with understanding that his own behavior instigates something in her. And he has a hard time kind of doing what, what I ask him to do. Like, don't chase her when she steals your sock or, you know, if you get down on the floor, that means you're ready to play. She will think you're ready to play if you're on the floor. That's her territory. So you can't sit on the floor and then be frustrated when she bounds over and starts wrestling with you, you know? He actually can because what he does is then offload it to you. Mom, 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 10 times a day. And This is so wonderful to have this puppy around because what Luke can start learning is the relationship between effort and outcome. Mm. When he is interrupting you, what other options have you considered with him in a conversation about what he can do to enable himself to wait. We've talked about having, like at school for sure, having a notebook and Uh writing down what he wants to say and waiting until the teacher's done. Same thing here. If I'm on the phone or if I'm just write something down and just wait, unless it's life or death, just wait. He'll do it maybe once or twice and then we've gone back. So we've tried that. I've also told him, that if he interrupts, like, I won't listen, or I'll turn and sort of leave the room. But the problem is, again, it's just the two of us. So he'll like, follow me. I struggle with that a bit. Sometimes I feel like, and again, maybe it's just still hard to believe that I actually lost my husband on some level. Like, I know I've accepted it, but at some level, I feel like it's still, I don't know, there, that I'm still in the state of shock, even though it's been years, that I need him to walk in the room. Like we'll hit a point where I'll think, okay, this isn't for me. Like this conversation or this wrestling match or this whatever the thing is where we're at now. When he was younger, it was very easy for me. And now that we're hitting, he's five foot three. Mm. He's tall. (laughs) He's starting early puberty, you know, all the things. I feel like we're moving into this zone, this parenting zone where The role of father is so important. And some of the conversations 
Like I can find my way for sure. And I'll read a bit if I need to, or seek out advice from others and that type of thing. And this phase we're going into isn't as natural for me as the little babier part was. And I think how to discipline him in this version, like this older version of him, is hard for me. And it feels like, you know, that thing that people always say where once you get comfortable as a parent, your kid changes and it's a new stage. And it's a new... I feel like we're in that now, especially during the pandemic. Like he feels like he's grown up a lot. No one ever believes he's 10. They always think he's at least 13. So... I don't know, sort of finding my way through this version of mothering is challenging, especially when we haven't had babysitters or other people in the house or help. Like that community of help that I had finally built for myself has been on pause for over a year now. And he just relies on me to meet more needs than I could possibly meet. And our sphere has just gotten so small. I, I can't remember if you said it or I heard it somewhere on, I, I maybe on armchair or something, but it was about feeling sort of like a prisoner in your own home in the mm-hmm. dynamic. And I think I feel that at times, like whatever I'm doing isn't working and I can't just step away or go for a walk. I can, but I can't really go that far. <laughs> I can sit in the backyard, but most likely he'll wander out. I have a hard time finding the space. Who else is in his world that he connects with, admires, is attached to, would like to be like? And I'm talking about good or bad influences. The rest of the personnel here. And I know it's not physical and it's not every day, But I'm looking out from Luke's lens to see who sits there on the horizon or up close. Yep. We have a really close family friend, someone who used to be our next door neighbor. He lives in the city, but he has definitely stayed in touch and is somewhat of a role model, I would say. He's around 30 and is like very much there for him. He was at our house the other day for a few hours just to spend time with him. So that's really nice. My brothers and I have siblings, they are all there. But again, they don't live here. We don't live close. So we see people like cousins and things a couple times a year, usually. My parents and my in-laws are very adoring, very attentive. My father in particular. Tell us about that relationship. Your dad what? He's like a little mischievy. <laughs> That's such a great word. I remember when maybe my son was maybe three or four. It was soon after his dad died. And my dad was visiting and we went to a service at the Unitarian Church. And my dad had drilled a hole through a quarter and tied, like before he came with a drill press, and tied a long fishing line. And he and my son hid in the bushes outside of the church. And as people were leaving, they were like scooching the, you know, the coin along the sidewalk and laughing, watching people like reach down and try to get it and it would move away, you know, just like silly stuff like that. What an Mm -hmm. enchantment because it is so precisely attuned to a three or four-year-old cognitive ability, 
sense of humor and sense of huge power in the world. Because what those two accomplished (laughs) was to get adults coming out of church puzzling over some magic, something supernatural that was happening on the ground. Yeah. And then they would look in the bushes and they'd see my dad and my son and get the giggles. So it was very sweet. They were bringing, I think, a lot of joy to those people as well. What happens between the two of them now? Do they see each other? I'm assuming not not in person. They FaceTime. How often? What goes on in the FaceTimes? Who initiates it? I would say always initiated by us. They're pretty Mm -hmm. short calls. Are you present I always leave the room. Yes, good. Yeah, always. I like get right out. Yep, yeah, right. yeah. Trust me, anytime I have help with my son, I'm like, quick, go, yeah. go, go. He's occupied by someone else. But they do that. Or if he does, my son was doing a trick on his bike the other day and had me film him to send it to his grandfather, you know, that kind of stuff. He's also really close with my mom. Like they'll FaceTime while he plays the piano so she can listen to him and his class had a poetry reading recently and all the grandparents will zoom in. And my aunt, who's one of my best friends, it's my mom's little sister. She calls in also. So we have this very attentive, like grandparent layer that he has. Uh My siblings have their own kids and don't live close by, but are also attentive in their own way. And we all get along great when we're together. We just don't see each other as much especially, you know, this last year sort of has been a wash. And then his coaches and his teachers, I think people who know his story or know what happened, especially for men, they really try to rise to the occasion and be there for him. He has people that I think that really love him and want to be there for him. And his father's friends too, like they'll reach out, not so much to him, but more to me that if I need anything as our son is getting older. So I do feel like we have the support, I think, emotionally on some level. It's more the day-to-day like decision fatigue side of things of for me to do work full-time, take care of the house, shovel the driveway, walk the dog, do all the things that we do and be as present for him as I try to be when he's home. And we cook together, we garden together, we do... We do a lot, but it still doesn't, I don't know, it feels like it's all consuming, I guess. I'm, I'm hearing about a circle of devotion that's mm-hmm. pretty broad and then a lot of wholesome, gentle goodness. Mm-hmm. When you talk to your aunt, yes. um, how often do you talk to this aunt? This is your mother's sister? Mm-hmm. Almost every day. Yes, I thought so. Okay, do the two of you gossip about your mother at all? I mean, yes, but we gossip sort of about, I don't gossip makes me feel self-conscious. I'm using the word very intentionally because what I'm aiming for here is a little bit more matter-of-fact, plain old human malice. And I don't normally encourage people to gossip at all. Look, you got my cheeks are red. (laughs) Yep. Are you and your aunt watching any of the same television shows now? 
Yes, I don't watch much TV at all, but she's the one who recommends things that I actually do. Okay, and what are you watching, both of you? Right now, I'm watching The Queen's Gambit, but I just Great. finished Bridgerton. Yes. That was racy. Racy <laughs> is good. I was so self-conscious. You were watching it by yourself? You were self-conscious? Yes. Oh, so just think about that for a minute. You were self-conscious watching beautiful, sexy, racy narrative and it's sort of, it's precious as I listen to it, but it's a little bit inhibited that you would feel self-conscious watching it by yourself as though you were watching hardcore pornography and Luke might walk in. <laughs> nurture versus Nurture will be right back. Third Love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all-day comfort and support. How does it work? The fitting room is an easy, interactive experience that focuses on size, breast shape, current fit issues, and your personal style. Throughout the process, fit stylists are available for one-on-one -on -one chats to answer any questions. Short educational videos teach stuff you never knew. How to put a bra on properly, how tight straps should be, and where the band should rest. And in the, quote, asking for a friend, end quote, section, you can learn things they didn't teach in middle school health class, like how to prevent breast sweat. Every third love bra is made with memory foam cups, no slip straps, and a scratch-free band. They offer over 80 cup sizes from AA to I, including half cups, and bands from 30 to 48. Third Love wants you to know that a great fit and style is out there for you. Right now, they are offering my listeners 20% off on your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash nurture now to find a bra that fits and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash nurture for 20% off today. I love my Third Love bras and I hope that you will too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. The part I like best are the meditations designed for children. Their message, we teach kids to look after their bodies, why not teach them to look after their minds as well? The parents I work with during these topsy-turvy times feel exhausted and confused how to make good decisions about their children's schooling, screen time, bedtime. There is so much mental chatter. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can help bring clarity to your thoughts, reduce stress, help you fall asleep and stay asleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Go to headspace.com slash nurture. That's headspace.com dot com slash nurture for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. Head to headspace.com slash nurture today. The reason I want to shake up a little tiny bit of this goodness is that the young prince who lives with you, who is such a fine lad, he certainly is. The two of you are, have been such 
a resourceful, resilient team. Mm -hmm. In the days before Mike's death, how did the back and forth between the two of you go about each of your needs and desires for independence, for fun, for being catered to, did it feel like a good balance or was there frustration on your part? And if there was no frustration at all, it would be some sort of weird robot android never before existed in history marriage. It was not that. (laughs) Okay, good. Tell, tell. We met in L.A., we both were working at the same place and he like decided from the second that he met me that we were going to get married. And he was like a handful to be around. He'd be so inappropriate by just complimenting me as he walked by or whatever the thing was. At work? Yes. What would he say? What would he say about you? We worked at a pretty casual place, let's be honest. But <laughs> he would walk by and be like, you look incredible today. Everyone does. Look at her hair. Doesn't her wow. hair look at me? You know, and I'd be like, ha. Ah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, what about your hair? What was it that he wanted everybody to see about your hair? He loved it that I was letting it go gray and not coloring it. And he yeah. thought it was cool and like showed self-confidence. And he also knew it would embarrass me. So he would tease me a lot. And huh. at some point I sort of broke down and we ended up falling in love pretty quickly. And we actually moved to Chicago. Mike was six foot three. He was a rugby player and he was this larger than life figure that everyone completely adored. He was in sort of the social good space and he's a hard act to follow. And I remember when I think I was at his apartment in LA and he caught a bug and walked to the window and let it go outside instead of killing it. And he was the first person that I knew that did that too, because I do that too. And he was definitely Buddhist and just this sort of earth shattering person in my life. And the most loving, the most caretaking, him becoming a father. He did the haka, which if you know, it's like a Maori war dance that they do at the beginning of uh, rugby, rugby matches, the all blacks do it. And he did the haka shirtless outside of the hospital room after our son was born. Our boy was his Simba. And he was the most, like, I mean, I could go on and on, right? I want to make sure I understand how the haka worked that day. So Luke was born. And he went outside the hospital, took off his shirt, and did a dance. And in Uh the hall. In the hall. Took off a shirt and did a chant and a dance. Yes, it's like a war cry that you do because yeah. he had his son. Like, he was so proud. <laughs> also, I was in labor for 68 hours uh, and had no intervention. So it was a pretty intense few days. But anyways, I think we very much supported and delighted each other in a lot of ways. We had our son early and... I think for me, becoming a mom had been such an important thing for me. I wasn't sure that I could. And when I got pregnant, I just was like fully in. And he was too. We read so many books and we had a doula and a midwife. We did all of it. And that's one of the things other people who've lost their spouse have said the same thing. But one of the, I think, tragedies of it all is that the person that 
was with me through that and knows how much we overcame together to meet this insanely impossible goal (laughs) that we did by uh, making it that long without drugs or intervention, that he's not here for me to like look at across the room and smile or for our son to do something incredible. And I wish he could see it. But we were good. We were frustrated. I had already lived in New York City for a long time. He was from California and he really wanted to work there for at least a couple of years. I didn't. I'd already done it. I wanted to be like up in the Catskills and have another baby and maybe go back to school and be a science teacher or something like that and just slow it all down a bit. So we were sort of passing towards that. I was actually supposed to quit my job on a Monday and his accident was the Thursday prior. Instead of all of that, I was expected to lean in, which was pretty much the last thing that I wanted to do. Expected to lean in by whom? I think by the industry that I was in, by Mm -hmm. my colleagues. I was a partner at a design firm in the city and I ended up going to work for one of our clients, which was a Fortune 10 And just, they were big jobs. And I think people thought I would fill my time doing things like that. And all I wanted was to be home with our boy. And my parents got divorced when I was really young. And my mom always was working. We moved a ton, all that kind of stuff. And so I think it was that thing of like, I'm going to be stable. I'm going to do it different. I'm going to be there for our boy. And then having to be the sole breadwinner and truck it into the city and do all of that was really just breaking me, which is why I ended up becoming a consultant so that I could be home at least when he came home from school and not miss out on things that I didn't want to miss out on, right? So I would say his dad and I were definitely struggling about him wanting to be in the city, me wanting to be in the country, what it all looked like, how to make it all work for both of us was a challenge we were having right at the time of his death because I was didn't want to be here. <laughs> and here we are, fast forward seven years, and I still live here. That's right. And this man was very exuberant and expansive and unselfconscious, at least in certain domains. And painfully optimistic. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Everything was always okay. Always so optimistic. So confident, positive, filled with hope. And the idea that things would turn out well? Always. Which puts you in the position then of having to balance that with some of the grimmer, more frustrating or darker aspects of how things actually do unfurl. Right. And with Luke, what jumps into my mind is shoveling the snow because you have managed through so many challenges. And there's a term that I'm not crazy about, but it's not bad, called post-traumatic resilience. Yes, or post-traumatic growth. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And wow, look what you've done and look what you continue to do and look at that bison and look at this boy. (laughs) But I'm wondering, are you still in communication with this spiritual dancer, Mike? Do you hear from Mike, talk to Mike, bring Mike forth 
in situations where he can be by your side or give you his optimistic, positive point of view? In the beginning, when he first died, it happened all the time. I had so many moments where I just felt like he was right there. And it's such, I feel self-conscious talking about it because I'm not really that woo-woo of a person in regards to that kind of stuff. But I would be thinking like, I don't know how I'm going to do this all by myself. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I would look up and like this, a sunbeam would just stop me in my tracks in my face. Or I'd be, have my headphones on walking into New York City, going to my job and a song that I haven't heard in years, we eloped, but it was the song I was going to walk down the aisle to. What song is that? It's a Sigur Rós song. It's oh, a beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I actually ended up playing it when I walked down the aisle at his funeral instead, which was ah. But it came on. And when do you hear that, like on the radio or on a plate? Yeah. It just doesn't, you know, you seek it out. It doesn't come up. And so I've, I've had a lot of those things. I had one time where... I just felt like he was sitting on the edge of my bed. And I remember getting a little creeped out, like opening my eyes and feeling like somebody was in my room and not liking it. Just funny, just like being, I don't know, thrown. I also can hear him. So the first Mother's Day that I had without him, I remember being nervous because he always told me what a good mom I was and how lucky he and our boy were and how proud he was sort of of exactly me. Exactly you. Exactly yeah. you. Yeah. It's not something that I've heard a lot in my life. I remember being like, oh, our boy's too little to do something on his own. And Mike's not here to write me those cards and say all those things and that he would. And then I had this great moment where I was like, I don't need him to. I already know what he would say. And I already know yeah. that I'm a good mom. And so I'll hear him in those moments when I'm, I don't know, doubting myself, which I do all the time or feeling like I could be doing better or whatever it might be. And I can hear him just sort of tell me to take a deep breath. And it's like the whole thing of do the next right thing or one day at a time yeah. or be present in the moment and all of his insane words of wisdom that he he had. I have a, a collection of letters that he left me because he used to write all the time that I read often. So that's been really nice. So his like overly optimistic verbose ways have actually been really nice since he left because I have such flowery and kind things to look back to. But it also makes it not hard to move on. But like, I think there's such a part of me that still feels married. You know, I have friends that are on me to online date or all those kind of things, which couldn't feel farther away from my brain. Like, because we didn't end our marriage. He just didn't come home one day. And we don't know what happened. We don't know what caused his accident. So there's a lot of ambiguity there around the whole thing, which again, I think has, I don't know, pushed me towards wanting to control what I can control. And that has gotten smaller and smaller. Like our little world inside our house feels safe. I can feel myself more insular even before the pandemic. So there's a part of you that is stuck in the mystery mm -hmm. of what caused his death, what that day could have been and wasn't, and connecting to, and not necessarily through online dating, but through expansive romance 
with anything, not necessarily in a relationship with a new man, but the continuum of attachment and exploration and wonder that is not stuck in solving the mystery of the loss Mm. or of that day. And I suspect there's a way you can read those letters and the messages from Mike as encouragement to movement Mm. because he was certainly an uninhibited mover. Agreed. And not self-conscious and so willing to do things he would not do in an office right now in 2021. Exactly. Like say, look at her hair and everybody else look at her hair and isn't she the sexiest <laughs> goddess on earth? <laughs> and I do want to get back to shoveling snow again because it packs a couple of things in it. We have a five foot three young person living with you. And some of what you're going through is what happens between parents and teenagers. And you called it early puberty. It actually isn't early any longer Mm. in the endocrinology world for 10-year-old boys to be entering puberty and nobody knows it. But that's why they're acting the way they are and growing so big and their moods go up and down. He's certainly an intellectually strong boy. Is he physically strong? Can he lift a shovel? This is a trick question. This past winter, we had a ton of snow. It was awesome. We went sledding a lot. We went cross-country Yay! skiing. It was, it was the best winter. Our puppy loved it. But one of the mornings after having a huge snowstorm, he told me to sit inside and have my tea and no matter what, not to look out the window. And about 45 minutes later, he came in and he had shoveled our steps and our walk. Our driveway is really big, so you really do need a snowblower. But he had shoveled as much as he possibly could as a surprise. He went to a Montessori school before the school he's at now. He has his own set of tools. He has his own kitchen knives and utensils. He cooked breakfast for me maybe a week ago, and he made from scratch blueberry pancakes and Canadian bacon and things like that. He's very helpful. He's very, very helpful around the house. But again, sometimes I think my wish for him is that he could just be a kid and not feel like he had to sort of take it all on. So yes, he helps with the shoveling. And then sometimes I wish he could just make snow angels and not feel like he always had to help. I think he he feels the responsibility of being the man of the house. And he has since he was really young. He feels like he needs to take care of me no matter what I do and what I say and all of that. Sociologists describe the world we live in as weird. And it's an acronym meaning Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democracies. So in cultures like that. What happens is we become very devoted to our children's achievement and their happiness, their day-to-day happiness, their pride, their enjoyment of their lives. And in all but the weird societies, the children are, and it's not even thought of as helping, they are contributing. 
Mm-hmm. They're contributing to the bottom line of yeah. getting through the day with food, shelter, and sufficient warmth. They are not even directly instructed. They watch the elders do things, and that's how they learn how to carve out a canoe. Let's move there. <laughs> <laughs> we can be very inspired by this as we aim towards a little bit of the grand and glorious. So those pancakes, they were delicious. He knows how to make them. He shoveled the snow. On his own accord. On his own accord and did a beautiful job and even said, Mom, you have some tea. Just stay here. Don't look out the window. And it's a teeny bit like your dad, the sort of clever and surprising moments that get choreographed and create a sense of ah or aha or tremendous appreciation in an audience. And what's hardest for everybody, and this becomes particularly hard with teenagers, is the hard and boring stuff that ends up bringing satisfaction. Hmm. Which means that you divide up with Luke the contributions to the household. Are there everyday responsibilities that could be stepped up just a little bit right now? And it's tricky with Luke because he's so talented in so many areas that it's tempting to appreciate those things and to find satisfaction and reassurance in them without pushing him to the next step of, and I don't want to call it helping you. I want to call it his duty. Yeah. Well, I don't give him an allowance. I don't really believe in that. I think everyone who's part of a family contributes because we're part of a family. So that's what we do. He's responsible for taking out the trash and the recycling whenever it's full. Without being reminded? I would say I remind him. Okay, I want that just to be the next step. Because if you have too much mental clutter, Mm -hmm. it becomes difficult for you to get into your state of flow. If you have to remind him it is not fully offloaded, that responsibility. The way that we treat um, phobias in children and adults is called exposure therapy and successive approximation. You're familiar Mm. with this, I can tell. And he's getting closer to remembering every time. I want him to remember every time. I want Mm. him to brush his teeth in the morning and before he goes to bed without you reminding him. Yep, he does that. Excellent. How did that happen? Please appreciate yourself right this minute. How did that happen? Yeah, he had a few cavities. Again, he's a bit of a rule follower. So he had some cavities and he took flossing more seriously. (laughs) And he just does it. And he'll tell me if he skips flossing, it's very funny. He'll be like, mom, I want you to know I decided to skip flossing tonight, but don't worry, I'll floss in the morning. (laughs) He reports in. He's talking to himself, actually. He's having a conversation with himself about stewardship of his teeth. And I'm sorry about the cavity and yay cavity, because that is a natural consequence. Right. 
Well, and he also unloads the dishwasher. He has to put the dishes away. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is just let, I'll let things pile up on the counters. And then this morning when he came in, he was like, whoa, there's a lot of dishes in the kitchen counter. And I said, yeah, the dishwasher's clean. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll do that. And so the next step, and it's a tiny, tiny little shift to keep your sentences as short and pointed as possible, because mm. he loads the dishwasher and he noticed the dishes piling up. And next time you can just say, yeah, and no more than that. And mm. a similar example would be kids who leave their clothes all over the place and a parent can just say, shoes, mm. because they're in a public place in the house where someone might trip. And so if you had said, if you looked at the dishes, and this is without sarcasm, it is simply observation. He made an observation and you are countering it or meeting it with an observation of your own. You can say to him, yes, dishes. And what I anticipate is that he would then make that connection. Do you think that's true? Yes. He'd probably be sassy about it. Fine. And be like, he'd be like, okay, mom, I get it. Uh-huh. In this weaning process from dependence on you as the reminder notification concierge about mm. responsibility, if a teenager is never sarcastic, sassy, a little bit nasty, if they never ever lie or cheat, If they never are sneaky, I really worry about them. And this is the territory you're entering. It's exciting and it's scary. (laughs) It's already happening. Let me ask you this. If I think he's lying about something trivial, do I call him out? You really want to pick your battles. Okay. And so a lot of it you will let go because there are white lies and venal sins. There are all different Mm -hmm. levels. Some of the lies are what are called butler lies. Mm -hmm. And it's just to make things go more smoothly in the general diplomacy of the house. So he's lying a little bit to protect you from things and to protect himself. Okay. And just let those kind of things go. Yes. And it's very similar to the idea of politeness or respect being too abstract. We never lie. We lie every day, all day long. And so if there's an egregious lie, not because it's the principle of lying, but because it could really cause a problem because it violates certain ethical and moral standards that are going to be very important for him to incorporate, then you call him out on that one. I want three people involved in how you decide which are your battles. One is your male friend that's so Mm -hmm. devoted. What's his first name? Ben. Ben. So there's what would Ben do? There is your aunt that you talk to every day because she is your best friend. How wonderful to have this relationship, which she is getting absolutely as much out of as you are. And this is your cohort. This is all of these people are raising Luke and Mike is as well. The Hmm. spirit of Mike, the spirit 
daily or however often it is, Spirit of Ben, and then your aunt, who you get to process all the stuff with and talk about Bridgerton. Mm. (laughs) So to not feel that it's all on you and that the two of you are a closed system that doesn't have flexibility and oxygen and lots of room for mistakes on both of your parts. I want you to make terrible mistakes. And it can sound flip and easy for me to say that, but no parent of a healthy, normal teenager has ever not done things that could possibly lead them to be investigated by the Department of Social Services. (laughs) And the reason I say this is that we have these kind of prim standards for ourselves these days. And you've got a young teenage man living with you now. Is he talking to you at all about crushes or heartbreak or longing or? Oh, yeah, of course. We are so there. That's been like well over a year. I had to come to terms with it a while ago that we were already in that phase. But even that, some of the questions, and I feel like I don't mean it to sound like I'm incapable. I know I am, and I know I can handle it. And I know, like, and you know, we're going to be fine. We'll, everything will be fine, blah, 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 that whole thing. But there's some stuff that I think where I struggle is that I don't want to be the one that has to do blank. I don't want to have to figure the thing out. And I think there's, if I'm being really honest, like a woe is me little like edge there where some of the stuff I don't, I just don't want to have to do. Not as much as with him, but more like around the house or figuring things out. Or I just want there to be, you know, it's like standing in front of the cereal aisle and there's so many choices. Like at some point, I want there to be someone else who's figuring something out. I think one of the things that's challenging about losing Mike and then also managing my son's anxiety, which he does have, is it's very triggering for me with my own stuff. And so what's that thing of like your kids know how to push your buttons because you're the one who gave them those buttons (laughs) because you installed those buttons, that whole idea. I get that, but it still pushes the buttons. And I sometimes feel like there's just nowhere to go with that. I can't like run away from it. It's just right here. And that side of things I find fatiguing. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And you did not install those buttons. Nurture versus nurture. We'll be right back. Everybody's having trouble sleeping now. The kids are getting into bed with their parents. Parents are lying down with kids until they fall asleep. Today's politics, the pandemic. All the other worries that go swirling around in our heads, it's hard to get a good night's sleep. A Helix mattress is one solution. Helix has a quiz that takes two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the right mattress for you. Order your mattress and it comes right to your door shipped for free. You may not need to go to a mattress store ever again. The Helix mattress the company sent to me is beautiful, it's comfortable, it's generous, and just the right amount of firm and soft. Just go to helixsleep.com slash nurture, take their 
two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they will pick it up for you. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash nurture. That's helixsleep.com slash nurture for up to $200 off and two free pillows. What's one of a child's first commands? Tell me a story. Crafting a tale is a human superpower, and children always love to hear about when you were their age in the Stone Age. Today, the ease of capturing every moment in photos and sound snippets has created a tsunami of isolated bits, yet we lack a rich and permanent archive of our family history, which is why I'm proud that Nurture vs. Nurture is sponsored by StoryWorth, an online service that sends weekly email story prompts to, for example, your mother for Mother's Day, with questions like, how did you get your first job? What was one of the most romantic moments in your life? What's the best advice your mother gave you? Or you can write your own. You get to read these stories each week, and at the end of the year, StoryWorth compiles all the stories, including photos, into a hardcover keepsake book that's shipped for free. Give your mom a meaningful gift this Mother's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash nurture. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash nurture. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash nurture for $10 off. So the way those buttons got there are your history and the culture you were raised in and his life experiences. What happens when they're teenagers is they know how to precisely find those buttons and just give it the right press at the right time because they have a lot of energy and drive to get whatever they want. And now's the time to recognize, to lean in. You talked about lean in before in relation to work. I want you to lean into your resentment, into your frustration, and to have a little conversation with yourself about how you don't want to be having the sex talk with him or to be handed problems to solve that you don't feel capable of solving right at that moment, because you don't have to do a great job at this. <sighs> and every single day with preteens and teenagers is learning from mistakes and then doing it badly again. And they tend to turn out fine. And it is amazing to look back much later in life at what you got through in a robust way. I do want you to lean into your team because you have a really nice team. And each day to think about how you can up the bar and discard the bar so that you're not measuring yourself all the time. Because it's one of the things I'm hearing is mm -hmm. quite a high standard along with this 
ongoing resentment of, why do I have to do this all by myself? Here's a new thing. Now he's a teenager and he's got crushes or he's got issues or he has stories and I have to process this and do it just right. Well, and that resentment, I think I notice in myself, I'm not really comfortable like leaning into anger and resentment and all of that. I try to be sort of at peace with things very consciously. And it's not that I avoid conflict, it's that I'll face it head on so that I can kind of move on. And I think the underlying resentment of becoming a single mom, which was like the one thing I was never going to be, I wasn't going to do that. I was raised by a single mom. I was not going to do that. We were going to provide stability, right? Like this wasn't going to be what happened. And somehow it's what happened. I think there's still something there that is so challenging for me to make peace with. And when you add in all my girlfriends, I'm the only widow of like my age group that I know. And the dinners that we'll have where all my friends are complaining about their husbands. Or one of my friends, when she said, she was like, oh my gosh, I was a single mom last week. I could totally relate. I don't know how you do it. Because her husband was traveling for a couple days. Yeah. And I find myself feeling not just alone, but like very different in those moments where, not to state the obvious, but when you go through a tragedy or a trauma, I think the little things kind of don't really seem to matter so much. Listening to people complain about the weather or traffic is probably my like biggest pet peeve because of all the things. And I can definitely tell I feel impatient in my friend groups often around those kinds of complaining about our husband's conversation. Like, and I will tend to sort of recoil or or avoid some of those situations because I I can't relate. And I think the way I feel other is so highlighted in those moments. So I think I, I can tell that I get impatient and a bit resentful of people around me, which I don't want to feel. It's not a feeling I like. Oh, your voice just went up and changed Ugh. in a different way than it has this entire conversation. So we really want to be very affectionate and respectful of the little girl who is enraged and at the same time slightly tickled when a friend says to you, wow, being a single mom, I can see what it's like because my husband was on a business trip for three days and it was kind of hell. And you're thinking, excuse me, my husband died when my son was two and a half years old. We still don't know exactly how. And mm-hmm. I've been managing for eight years and you're talking about eight minutes. Yeah. I don't want you doing too many things that are potentially triggering because they are the norm or expected or these are social mores that this Mm. is what you do. Thank you. (laughs) You just permissioned me. I can say no to more. You say no. It's two things. It's saying no and saying yes. So it can feel like you should be able to endure situations with a whole bunch of other moms who complain about their husbands and you're thinking, I wish I had a husband to complain about right now, woman. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, to totally recognize your irritation, possibly rage, 
and to have a conversation with, and I, the reason I mentioned your voice going up is I saw the little girl just for a moment, and little Anne needs you to say to her, sweetheart, I know, and we're going to be out of here in about half an hour, and when we mm-hmm. get home, this is what we're going to do. We're going to listen to Cigarose, and we're going to paint or just yes. look at the bison and commune with the bison. <laughs> and absolutely talk with your aunt who is your friend. And that's not so common Mm. and probably would not have happened. And I don't want to think of it as silver lining, but just the river of life and you never standing in the same river twice, that you would be talking to this aunt every day would Mm. not be likely if your life had continued on the path you expected. So this is just a wonderful serendipitous bond. No, I agree. And just to say is because the silver lining thing I think is very true in that the relationship I have with Mike's parents couldn't be better. And we've worked through a lot together. They were in a little bit of a rough patch with him uh, at the time of his death. And we've really found our way and actively have kept in touch and really have worked on that. And I'm, I'm really proud of all of us for that. And I think the side of me, I feel remarkably grateful. I feel like I learned so much about myself, all of the things, right, that are profound. And even the way that I look at everything from life and death has been interesting. The conversations that I have with my son around death, you know, I don't know, there is a story that is worth telling where he was brushing his teeth maybe a year or so ago. And he sort of had this funny look on his face and he turned to me and he said, mama, is it true that the universe always has the same amount of energy? And I said, yeah, it's true. It's called a closed fix system. Yes. So it can't lose energy, but it doesn't get more. We just, we have a a set amount of energy. And he sort of was quiet and he like turned to me in his PJs and he said, well, then it's not really true that we're ever born or that we ever die. This is just the form my energy is taking right now. So I smiled and I took a breath and I said, yeah, I think that's right. And then he brushes his teeth for a minute. And then he looked at me with the biggest smile on his face and he said, mama, that's why we make such a good team. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, because our energy always finds each other. (laughs) Those moments, that enlightenment, if you will, that ability to sort of the expansiveness of love and of all of that, that our son has been able to experience I feel so grateful to Mike for, though. like, there's lessons in there that are, are really beautiful. This story is a perfect place for us to wrap up because what you're talking about is how children are spirit guides in disguise. He's explaining to you about how to metabolize and incorporate and be elevated through the cycle of life, most people, and certainly our culture, lives in manic denial of death, and that any of us could die at any moment. And your son is talking about a closed system that also encloses us and holds us together and connects us to the entire cosmos. Mm. And so he will continue to guide you 
and to frustrate you and to annoy <laughs> you and to lead you and he will make more bison. And it has been a privilege for me to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time, for your insight, for the inspiring spirit that you offer to our listeners. And I wish you a good afternoon today. Thank you so much, Dr. Mogul. I appreciate you. Thank you. Bye-bye. I often have to help parents reframe their child's worst trait as his most positive and promising. In my first book, The Blessing of a Skin Knee, I made a list. Consider a stubborn or whining child persistent, a complaining child discerning, a child who overeats sensual, the argumentative child filled with conviction, the loud one exuberant, a shy child cautious a rule-breaking child, daring, a bossy child, commanding, and your obsessive child, detail-oriented. Besides some clinginess and understandable concerns about death, Anne doesn't have any of these specific complaints about her outstanding, well-adjusted son, Luke. Instead, in the mode of modern, loving, devoted, concerned parents, she's worrying ahead. Psychologists call this a meta-emotion, a feeling in response to a feeling, or anticipatory anxiety. Sure, he's a great student, but things come easily to him. What if he doesn't develop academic grit? He's an athlete, an artist, a musician, and has prodigious social skills. But what if his self-confidence alienates other kids? We enjoy each other's company so much. What if he becomes enmeshed? He did a good job shoveling the snow for us, but why can't he just be a kid? Instead of seeing this reflex as neurotic or unnecessary, we can reframe it as a normal superstition with a long history. In Moment magazine, journalist George Johnson writes about how, quote, Clint Eastwood unexpectedly proved himself more Tevye the Dairyman than Dirty Harry in 2004 in response to a reporter's question about the chances of his movie Mystic River winning the Best Picture Oscar. Eastwood cried, Kinahara! He explained that it was a Jewish expression used to ward off a jinx, one of countless protective folk actions to avoid, fool, or attack envious evil spirits, end quote. Revealing the praise you heard at your last parent-teacher conference, getting the new job you want, enjoying watching Bridgerton, it's okay, the spirits won't notice. Or to be extra safe, I have Kinahara, a wonderful child, who will continue to be wonderful. Though, however wonderful my child is, I still don't have to go to your cocktail party. A silver lining to pandemic lockdown is the recognition that there are social obligations where the costs outweigh the rewards. The Japanese have a single word that describes a simple strategy for dodging unwelcome company. Irusu is a noun that means pretending nobody is at home when somebody rings your doorbell or knocks at your door. Since few people are showing up unannounced these days, we can practice Irusu in response to invitations. Thanks for thinking of me, but I won't be able to make it. 
Great talking, gotta go, and no more words are necessary. Come back next week and meet parents who met on the basketball team in college, became teachers, had three kids, and left Baltimore to take jobs in China, Egypt, and Myanmar. And I'll tell you the best book I've read in 2021. Okay, I'll tell you now so you can get started. It's Mira Jacobs' Good Talk, a memoir in conversations and pictures about race and sex, love in a family, and the deep connection between a mother and her young son. Very reminiscent of the story of Anne and Luke we heard today. And do tell me if there's a word in any language about slowing down as you reach the end of a book you're sad to part with. There should be one, right? Enjoy the book, same time next week.